أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين Previously we examined the migration of those early Muslims to Abyssinia or modern-day Ethiopia. About 82 or 83 men and women migrated to the land of Najashi. Now some of those migrants, about 30 of them, after two or three months returned back to Mecca. Why did they return back to Mecca? Based on historical clues, we can conclude that the reason why they migrated back to Mecca or went back to Mecca is that once Quraysh, the powerful elites of Mecca, realized that Islam is getting stronger, 80 Muslims have left, we can no longer persecute them, and they realized that Islam is now spreading elsewhere, they kind of backed off from harassing the Muslims. So there wasn't really a truce between them and the Prophet They were still at war with the Prophet. But things calmed down. They realized an important turning point had happened. Many Muslims had fled. So they were thinking deeply, what's our next step? What is our next move? So there was a relative calm in Mecca as Quraysh was figuring out what's the next step. Apparently news reaches to those migrants in Abyssinia that there's a truce between Quraysh and the Prophet as a result of this calm. So they thought this could be a permanent truce. So they went back to Mecca. Remember it's not easy to leave your hometown, your house, your life and your city. So about 30 or so of them did return back to Mecca. But when they came to Mecca, they were you know, shocked that there was really no truce. The Quraysh were just thinking how they would strike next. So this is the correct opinion upon historical analysis of why those Muslims went back. There's another opinion that's mentioned in historical books. We find it in books of history, especially with Sunni schools of thought. It gives us a very problematic story of why those Muslims went back to Mecca. Some of you may be familiar with the incident, it's called the incident of Gharaniq or the Satanic Verses. If you've ever heard about the book by Rushdi, Satanic Verses, it revolves around this fabricated event that never really happened. So basically, this is what happened. According to this story, was that about two months after Muslims migrated to Habasha, the Prophet was one day sitting down with pagans, debating them, discussing with them, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him Surah Al-Najm. Then Jibra'il reaches verse 19 and 20 of Surah Al-Najm. 
أفرأيتم اللات والعزى ومنات الثالثة الأخرى Allah is mentioning the three main idols in Mecca. Lat, Uzza, and Manat. So the verse is translated like this. Have you considered these deities, these idols? And have sons, and you have sons, but the daughters are for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the following verse. Alakumu al-dhakar wa Because this was a pagan belief that the angels are females and, the, and they're the daughters of God. But we have sons, God only has daughters. They insulted God that way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala attacks them for these fictitious beliefs. So Allah says, have you considered these idols? Why are you worshipping these idols? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is inviting them to contemplate, not to worship these idols. Well, when the Prophet mentioned these three idols, Lat, Uzza, and Manat, according to this fabricated story, Satan came and he inserted words into the mouth of the Prophet. What did he say? These are the high Gharaniq, the cranes or beautiful high-ranking birds in reference to these deities. And their shafa'ah, intercession, is expected. Pagans were shocked. Finally, Muhammad comes to common grounds with us. Then the Prophet continues Surah Al-Najm until he gets to the verse of sujood because there's a wajib sujood in Surah Al-Najm. The Prophet prostrates to Allah, the pagans prostrate with him to their idols. Because they believe now he's recognized our idols, finally. He's mentioned Lat, Uzza and Manat. And he said they can do Shafa'ah for us. Because Satan inserted those verses. So they figured Muhammad is finally compromising. There was now a truce between the Muslims and the pagans. Those migrants in Habasha hear about this truce so they come back to Mecca. This is the fictitious story that we hear. It's called the story of Gharaniq. Now interestingly Bukhari narrates that not only did the pagans and the Muslims prostrate, the jinn also prostrated. It was such an important <laughs> event or incident that everybody prostrated, humans, jinns, everyone. It was such an important you know, uh, incident. So Mecca cheered, finally there was an, an agreement with pagans to the point that the pagans carried the Prophet in this alleys of Mecca cheering. Yeah, these are what these fictitious historical accounts state, yes. Yes, they believe that Satan, he inserted those words and then the Prophet was alerted by Jibra'il. So this is what happened. At night, Jibra'il comes. Usually at night, Jibra'il would come and review the Holy Quran with the Prophet. You know, today, so and so verses were revealed, let's review them. So Jibra'il comes that night, he tells him, okay Muhammad, Messenger of God, review these, review the surah with me. So the Prophet is reading until he gets to these verses, right? These two, well let's not even call them verses, these two words. 
about the idols that the Quraysh used to worship. When the Prophet recites that, Jibra'il tells him, hold on, what did you just recite? He told him, didn't you teach me these verses? He says, no, that's not part of the surah. Where did you get that from? That's kufr, gharaniq, these idols, and they will do shafa'ah? I never taught you that. So Jibra'il rebukes the Prophet. So the Prophet says, did I attribute to God something he didn't say? Jibra'il then notifies him that this was Satan who put those words in his mouth. <laughs> Can you believe how some people view our Prophet Some so-called Muslims. How can you be a true Muslim when Satan is playing around with verses? Unfortunately, Orientalists, you know, uh, in the last two, three centuries, they have placed a lot of attention on the story of the Satanic verses. And many of them believe in this. Yeah, this was their prophet. Satan could cast words into his mouth. And then they argue that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals verses 73 to 75 of Surah Al-Isra. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, وَإِذَا وَلَوْلَا أَنْ ثَبَّتْنَاكَ لَقَدْ كِدْتَ تَرْكَنُ إِلَيْهِمْ شَيْئًا قَلِيلًا إِذًا لَأَذَقْنَاكَ ضَعْفَ الْحَيَاةِ وَضَعْفَ الْمَمَاتِ ثُمَّ لَا تَجِدُ لَكَ عَلَيْنَا نَصِيرًا Verses 73 to 75 of Surah Al-Isra. Now by the way, let me comment here. Sometimes when you hear these fabrications, they sound so obvious that they're false, right? But remember, those people who would fabricate were smart. They would use verses from the Qur'an that substantiate their claim by misinterpreting them. That's why in the Qur'an we have the mutashabih verses and the muhkam verses, the solid very clear verses, and then the verses that are not so clear. In Surah Ali Imran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states why we have such verses in the Qur'an, the ambiguous verses, why? Because Allah says those who have a disease in their hearts, they follow the ambiguous verses and they insert their own opinions. See, God wants to test us. These are some verses they use to substantiate their claim. I'll read you the translation of verses 73 to 75 of Surah Al-Isra. So the translation goes like this, they had almost led you away from what has been revealed to you, that you may invent things about us besides those revealed when they would have taken you as friend. If we had not kept you constant, you had almost leaned towards them. This is Quran by the way. In that case, meaning if you would have leaned towards them Ya Rasulullah, we would have made you test a double anguish of life and a double anguish of death, meaning we would have punished you, and you would not have been able to find a helper against us for yourself. What do you think of this verse? See, if you don't go to Ahlul Bayt to see what's going on with this verse, you could say, you know what? This verse could be compatible with this fabricated story because Allah is clearly saying that you would have been swayed towards them had we not kept you firm and fixed. 
Maybe you would have leaned towards them. You might have invented certain things. That's the apparent meaning of the verse, yes. That when you read the Qur'an, seek refuge to Allah from the Satan because supposedly he can, for example, have an influence on you. I didn't see them using that particular verse, but they do use verses like these. But yes, if you want to misinterpret verses, you can also misinterpret that one. Yes, brother. Well, I have a question I was not unsure of. They say that after the Prophet is born or a Muslim, like after he becomes a Prophet, that Satan is no longer allowed to take human form as he could before. Does that, does that like apply that means that Satan can only stay where... So generally speaking, before the Prophet jinns, not just Satan, jinns could take human form and interact with people. However, after the birth of the Prophet and the advent of Islam, they were banned from doing that. Yes, we do have references in our hadith. Now, when it comes to this verse, what's the meaning of it then? See, the Prophet really cared about his people. Sometimes he did want to negotiate with them, not in the sense of compromising, but to talk to them, for example, to try to have a peaceful conversation with them. Now, these evil people, they had conspiracies and plans to destroy the Prophet So the Qur'an is saying, O Messenger of God, had we not protected you, you might have tried more, give them, given them more chances so they would believe. But in the process, they would be planning to assassinate you. So we saved you from that. So it's not that you're inventing things in religion, no. The Prophet really cared about his people. He did not want them to be punished. He did not want them to, be, to stay pagans. So if it was up to him, he would have given them more chances, he would have tried more, but they're conspiring to kill him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling him, if it weren't for us, you would have tried more, which is good because that's out of your humanity, Ya Rasulullah. If it weren't for us, then you would have perished. So it's not saying that if it weren't for us, that means you, know, you would have invented verses in the Holy Quran and you would have succumbed to their desires. Of course not. That's not a quality of a prophet. That's one meaning. Another meaning is that Allah is saying, O oh Messenger, if it weren't for the infallibility that we gave you, then you would have compromised with them. So Allah wants people to know that God has given the Prophet the status of infallibility. It's because of that status that he does not yield to anyone. So this is a divine status. Don't think you can negotiate with a prophet because he is given a divine status by God. Don't try, don't waste your time. The prophet is not an emotional human whom you can argue with and eventually you could get your way. No, he's got infallibility. It's exactly like Yusuf The Quran says if it weren't for the proofs of God that Yusuf saw, which is infallibility, he would have what? 
according to one tafsir, he would have give in, given in to Zulaikha when she invited him. To corruption, he would have given in. But because of infallibility, he did not. Same idea here. Allah is telling the Prophet, if it weren't for our favors on you, that we made you a prophet and we gave you infallibility and knowledge, yes, you would have given in, you would have given to, given in to them. Because humans under extreme pressure eventually give in. And the prophet, if he was just a normal human, he would have given in. But because of the status of infallibility, he does not. That's the meaning of the verse. Yes, brother. The Quran says, bihi. She tried to invite him to corruption. biha, And he also did. If it, were, if it were not for him seeing the proof of his Lord. So scholars have a number of views, what is that proof? Many scholars say that proof is a reference to infallibility. Meaning if he was not an infallible prophet, he would have also given in. But because he's infallible, he did not. So the Quran is not saying he gave in, then we saved him. No, no, no. The Quran is saying, had it not been for infallibility, he would have given in. But because he's infallible, he never gave in. That's one tafsir. Of course, another tafsir is when she did that with him, he, he attempted to kill her. Not intentionally, but maybe to just, you know, physically defend himself, push her and that could have gotten her killed. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent him a message or a sign, don't, just run away. Because if you physically push her or do something, she could accuse you as being the aggressor here. And then you have no way to defend yourself. Because then it will be proven that there's physical assault. Now imagine standing before the king in court and saying, oh no, I was just defending myself. Nobody's going to buy that. Whenever there's a case like that, the man is accused, not the woman, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspired him, don't touch her, just leave. Even if you want to protect yourself, don't touch her. Because then she'll accuse you. And she did. But Allah using the shirt, He did uh, defend him. So the same idea exists here in these verses. Now there's another verse by the way, which is very important. And it shows you that when you don't follow the Ahlul Bayt, you can err in the Holy Qur'an. That's Surah Al-Hajj verse 52 to 53. Those who believe in the story of Gharaniq and Satanic verses, they're like, yeah, verses 52 and 53 of Surah Al-Hajj confirm this. Well, what does Allah say? وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ مِنْ رَسُولٍ وَلَا نَبِيٍ إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّا أَلْقَ الشَّيْطَانُ فِي أُمْنِيَّتِهِ فَيَنْسَخُ اللَّهُ مَا, يلقى الشي... ما يُلْقِ الشَّيْطَانُ ثُمَّ يُحْكُمُ اللَّهُ آيَاتِهِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ لِيَجْعَلَ مَا يُلْقِ الشَّيْطَانُ فِتْنَةً لِلَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٍ The translation, we have not sent a messenger or an apostle before you except that the omniya of shaitan, now the word omniya has been translated in two ways, one the recitations of shaitan, one, the wishes of shaitan. Except that the recitations or w wishes of shaitan, he would tamper with you. So every prophet we've sent before, shaitan, he tampered with the recitation or the wishes of the prophet. That's a verse in the Quran. 
The shaytan tampered with the recitation or the wishes of the Prophet. So that's a verse in the Holy Quran. Yet God abrogates what Satan interpolates and, in, and interjects, then he confirms his revelations, for God is all-knowing and all-wise. So here we have a verse in the Quran that says, we have not sent a messenger except that Satan will insert something in his recitations or another translation says, in his wishes, the wishes of the Prophet. And they're like, yeah, look, this confirms the story of Gharaniq because that's what this shaitan did. He interjected words into the recitation of the Prophet How do we respond to that? Yes. So what is the Shia tafsir of what yeah, we'll, we'll examine that. Right now in, in responding to this, we'll examine, we'll examine what 52 and 53 of Surah Al-Hajj means. So in any case, this was, you know, uh, this was a fabricated incident about the Gharani. By the way, not all Sunni scholars accept this. You have scholars like Bayhaqi, Baydawi, Razi, Nawawi, they've rejected these traditions. Like this contradicts the Qur'an, it contradicts logic and we cannot accept them, but many have also accepted them. So let's examine this incident. First of all, we see that these claims directly contradict the Qur'an because there's a verse in the Holy Qur'an and many verses in which Allah says, my servants, when Allah is talking to the devil, shaitan, Allah tells shaitan, you don't have authority over my servants. You have no authority over my servants. You cannot influence them in any way. Well, shaitan inserting words into the mouth of the Prophet, that's a type of authority that he has over the Prophet. And the Prophet didn't even know it. That's the worst type of authority. Jibra'il had to inform him later that night. So this contradicts the Qur'an. And whenever we have hadith that contradicts the Qur'an, what do we do with it? Dismiss it? We dismiss it. We cannot accept a hadith that contradicts the Holy Qur'an. Number two, subhanAllah, Surah Al-Najm itself, in the beginning verses, Allah says, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَىٰ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَىٰ You want a clear verse than that? He does not utter anything except revelation. He does not utter anything, nothing out of his own desire, except that it is wahi. But then a few verses later, oh, the shaitan is going to insert verses. That's a contradiction. Who, who, who am I trusting here? How can I trust God when he says everything the prophet says is revelation, when uh, 19 verses later, shaitan is interjecting verses? That's impossible. So this story of Gharaniq directly contradicts Surah Al-Najm itself which they're citing. So that's not possible. Number three, what's the meaning of verse 52 and 53 of Surah Al-Hajj? See the word Umniya in Arabic, some have used it to mean recitation, but that's not the real meaning of Umniya. The better translation is wish. Every prophet has a wish with their people. Let me ask you, what is usually the wish of a prophet with his people? For them to what? Follow him. The Quran is saying every prophet we sent has a wish. 
has this eagerness, right, this want, this desire that His people follow the truth. They stop the path of corruption and deviation and they embrace the path of righteousness. Shaitan tries to tamper with this wish. What does that mean? If I have a wish as a leader, Shaitan, he wants to impact that wish. How does he impact that wish? He misguides the people, right? If I have a wish for my people to follow me and to follow the path of guidance, Shaitan's goal is to mess up my wish, which means he goes and misguides the people. So when the Quran says, we have not sent a messenger in the past, except that Shaitan tried to tamper with their wish, it means every prophet's wish was to guide their people. Shaitan's wish is otherwise, to misguide the people. So the Shaitan, he goes and misguides the people. In doing so, he's trying to tamper with the wish of the prophet, but then Allah says, we have our own plan. We abrogate what the Shaitan does, whomever we see fit, we will guide. Shaitan cannot change that. If God wants to guide someone, shaitan cannot get in the way. That's the meaning of it. Number two, as a Sayyidul Murtala, the you know, famous scholar of the past, he has a beautiful statement here. He says, fine, let's say the word omnia means recitation, not wish. Which is unusual because in Arabic the word omnia is not used to mean recitation. It means wish. For those who know Arabic, haven't you heard the word andi omnia? Have you heard this? Well, what does that mean? I have a wish, right? He's like, fine, fine. Let's say just for the sake of argument, it means recitation. Well, what does it mean for the shaitan to interject into the recitation? He says the meaning is very clear. When the prophet would recite words of truth to his people, shaitan would come to those evil ones and he would cause them to reject the recitation of the prophet. That's how he would tamper with it. He wouldn't change what the prophet would be saying. He would influence the evil ones how to accept the recitation from the prophet. So the prophet's reciting the Quran. They put their hands in their ears, they reject, nothing works. Shaitan would do that. So the shaitan has no authority. See, when you don't go to Ahlul Bayt for the tafsir of the Quran, this is what happens. SubhanAllah, I mean, could God contradict himself? In one verse he says, everything he says is wahi, but no, shaitan can, you know, insert things into his mouth and he can change his wishes and that's a contradiction. I have no respect for a book that is full of contradictions like that. You have to go to Ahlul Bayt and Ahlul Bayt beautifully tell us that the wish of every prophet is what? To guide their people. And shaitan wants to tamper with that wish by misguiding people. So the prophet doesn't see his wish being realized. That's the meaning of it. Now you could ask, well why does God put a verse like that that could go either way? To test us. Where's the test then? Why do we need Ahlul Bayt then? Allah is teaching us, you're not going to follow the Ahlul Bayt? This is where you'll end up, in contradictions, yes. that has the muhkam and mutashabih, it's on the first page of Surah Ali Imran, verse 7. It says we have two types of verses, the solid clear ones, the mutashabih ambiguous ones that could go both ways, and Allah says the reason why we put them is to test people, because those who have a disease in their hearts, they will misinterpret the mutashabih verses. 
So this is how we can understand, you know, the issue of shaitan trying to mess around with the revelation. We categorically reject that. It goes directly against the Qur'an. And remember, if shaitan can insert verses, how can you trust the Qur'an? The next day the Prophet is, is reciting new verses, I could have had an easy way out. Ya Rasulullah, O Muhammad, who said what you're saying is true? Maybe the shaitan is doing it again. Would God allow that for a Prophet? That would have been the best excuse for the pagans if that really happened. But did you ever hear in history they said that? No. That would have been a perfect excuse. Just like yesterday, shaitan spoke to your mouth and your mouth, well he could do it today and tomorrow and tomorrow and again and again. And when he appointed Imam Ali, maybe it was shaitan appointing Imam Ali. Now they would have come up with a billion excuses and rejected everything in Islam. How could God do that? That's impossible. But subhanallah, when it comes to Umar ibn al-Khattab, in their books, they have hadiths that shaitan cannot go near Umar ibn al-Khattab. <laughs> yes, they have these hadiths in their book. Shaitan runs away from Umar and anything related to Umar. That's a book. That's a book. That's a hadith in their books. Another hadith they have in their books that ever since Umar ibn al-Khattab became a Muslim, whenever shaitan would see him, he'd fall on his face to the ground because he'd be so afraid to see Umar. And then another hadith they have states that whenever Umar would go into a direction or a valley, shaitan would run away to the opposite direction. He can't go near Umar. But the Prophet haram, that shaitan speaks, he inserts words, words into his mouth. Tragic, isn't it? Tragic. Yes. Someone had a question? So in any case, we reject the story of Gharaniq and satanic verses. That's not the reason why those Muslims came back from Habasha. It was because of the relative calm. So they were under the impression, you know, maybe Quraysh has changed their plans to harass us. Let's now go back to Najashi. So Najashi was this just king who gave refuge to the Muslims. By the way, when he gave refuge to Muslims and he signaled his belief in what the Prophet taught to Muslims. Remember we talked about Surah Maryam and how Najashi said this is exactly what Jesus preached and even when Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, the brother of Imam Ali السلام, told him that our belief in Jesus is that he's not the son of God, he's the servant of God, Najashi even confirmed this. Now this disappointed the bishops who were around Najashi, he's like what's going on? This Najashi, he's believing in this religion, he doesn't believe Jesus is the son of God, what appears from historical accounts is that a revolution took place in Abyssinia to overthrow Najashi because they accused him of defecting from Christianity and not preserving the original Christian beliefs. Look at what Najashi does. He tells the group of Muslims who were there, he tells them there is an uprising. I don't know if I will make it. So here are boats I have made ready for you. If they overthrow me, quickly leave, escape and go wherever you want. 
And if I retain my power and stay as a king, you're welcome to stay here, subhanAllah. Even though he realized that their presence sparked this revolution, he was so merciful with them. Now Allah grants him victory and he retains his power as a king. The rebellion or the revolution does not become successful. Now what happened to the fate of Najashi? While some Muslims throughout the upcoming years they did go back, especially when the Prophet migrated um, six, seven years later to Medina, many of them did go, but some of them stayed for 15 years in Habashir, like Ja'far. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, when did he leave Habasha? He lived in the seventh year of the Hijrah, when the Prophet was in Medina, right after the Battle of Khaybar, he came back. So for 15 years, he was in, in, in Ethiopia and they were spreading the, the teachings of Islam and that's why, that's one reason why Islam spread in Africa, due to those early Muslim people who were there. Now when Ja'far came back to Medina, we'll examine that later when we talk about the events of Medina, the Prophet was so happy when he embraced Ja'far and he said, I don't know for which am I happier today, for the victory of Khaybar or for the return of Ja'far. So he stayed there for 15 years. Now we have historical accounts that tell us the Prophet when he went to Medina, he sent a letter to Najashi. He sent him a letter inviting him to the religion of Islam. It's a beautiful letter, we actually have the text of that letter. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Min Muhammadin Rasulillah ila najashi al-Asham Malik al-Habasha. From the Messenger of God to Najashi, his first name was Asham, the king of Habasha, Abyssinia. Salamun alayk. The Prophet gives his salam to Najashi. فَإِنِّي أَحْمَدُ إِلَيْكَ اللَّهَ الْمَلِكَ الْقُدُّوسَ الْمُؤْمِنَ الْمُهَيْمِنَ وَأُشْهِدُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ عِيسَى رُوحَ اللَّهِ وَكَلِمَتَهُ أَلْقَاهَا إِلَى مَرْيَمَ الْبَتُولِ It's a beautiful letter in which the Prophet says, I testify there is only one God. I testify that Jesus is the Word of God that He gave to Maryam the pure. God created Jesus from His own soul and He blew into him from his spirit, just as he created Adam. And I invite you, O Najashi, to believe in the one God without a partner, to worship God and obey Him and to follow me, and to follow my religion. If you do that, you know, and, then, and then he tells him that I've sent you know, Ja'far, my cousin, he is the leader of the Muslim group. He thanks him for giving them refuge. And then he tells him that I've made the proof clear to you. Either you follow me, Allah will save you, your world is good, your hereafter will be good, or if you want to be stubborn and reject me, God will punish you. So he sends him a letter like that. Najashi is inspired by this letter and our historical accounts tell us that he became a Muslim. He embraced the religion of Islam. He believed in the message of the Prophet. He sends a letter back to the Prophet. He thanks him for the letter. He tells him, everything you've written, I believe in. I consider you a messenger. It, it would be my honor to serve you and wash your feet. 
However, as you know, I have obligations here as a king. If you order me to come and serve you, I will come. If not, then I am sending my own son. He sends his own son. He says, my son will serve you. And he sends his son to the Prophet The Prophet says, no, stay there and you know, be the king and invite, to, invite people to worship God, the one God. So in fact, we have indications that Najashi became a Muslim and he embraced the message of the Prophet we, haven't, we even have historical accounts that later Najashi sent a group of 14 priests or bishops to visit the Prophet in Medina. When they entered Medina, those 14 priests, the Prophet got up, now they were Christian priests, they didn't, he became Muslim secretly but they didn't. He, the Prophet, stood up to serve them with his own hands. The companions told him, Ya Rasulullah, this is not appropriate, let us serve them. He said, no. Najashi honored the Muslims and he gave them refuge and these are the people of the book. So I want to serve them with, with my own hands. And subhanAllah, this shows you the spirit of interfaith that the Prophet has. Bishops coming to his mosque, he gets up with his own hands, he serves them. And he refuses, he, reject, he, he does not allow the companions to serve, the, to serve them. He wants to serve them himself, to show respect. Now Najashi dies when the Prophet was in Medina. We do have hadiths that when he died, the Prophet actually prayed for him. He did salat on him, meaning he prayed for him and he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive him. So that's the ending you know, with Najashi. In the seventh year of Hijrah, all those Muslims who remained in Habasha, they returned back to Medina with Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. So it was really an interesting you know, segment in the history of Islam and those early Muslims planted the roots of Islam in Africa and that's truly amazing. Despite the Arabs being so racist, anti-African, you would imagine why would any of those Africans become Muslim? It was because of acts like these, because of people like Ja'far who really sacrificed for the sake of Allah, 15 years away from his home just to sacrifice for the religion of Islam and to teach others about the religion of Islam. We had later Imams of Ahlul Bayt marrying women who were African slaves, African slaves, to shatter this racist idea that Arabs had. Nothing is more powerful than your leader in society marrying an African slave because he was sending a powerful message that she's equal to anyone else. That's why Africans, especially Northern Africa, they embraced the religion of Islam because of acts like these. Now, one other incident we will discuss before we end today. Historians have revealed that after the incident of Gharaniq, you know, that supposed incident, we have Surah Abasa being revealed. Surah Abasa wa Tawalla. It's one of the chapters that were revealed in Mecca. Basically, to summarize this story, the Prophet was sitting with a group of high-ranking members of Quraysh, the pagans. He was having a discussion with them in hopes that they would become Muslim.
while the Prophet was in that gathering, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum walks into that gathering. Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum was not only poor, but he was blind. He was blind and he was poor. So he comes next to the Prophet, he hears the Prophet's voice, he comes to him and he tells him, you know, I have a few questions about some verses from the Qur'an, so please explain to me, give me knowledge. According to Sunni hadith, the Prophet got disappointed in him, you know, why is he disrupting my meeting? So he turns his face from him. When he turns his face, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals Surah Abasa rebuking the Prophet and telling him, Abasa wa tawalla an ja'ahu al-a'ma, you frown and turn your face when the blind man comes to you, meaning because he's a blind man. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues rebuking him. The vast majority of Sunni scholars, exegetes, historians believe that this verse was revealed about the Prophet He was sitting with a group of rich people. When that poor guy, the blind man came in, the Prophet felt uncomfortable. He turned his face and he frowned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then rebukes him. Why did you do that? We'll read the verses in detail. We the followers of Ahlul Bayt reject this. We believe that this is not compatible with the akhlaq of the Prophet with other verses in the Holy Qur'an. So here's our critique. Now by the way, those claim, you know some other uh, narrations claim that after this incident the Prophet was never seen showing concern for the rich. Because God rebuked him, he made it upon himself not to show any concern for the rich, to sit with them, to give them time, forget about it because God rebuked me. They had, they have another hadith by Al-Hakam or actually this one by Ibn Zayd. He says if the Prophet could hide one of the verses of the Quran, he would hide this verse because it was so embarrassing for him. God rebuked him. So if he could hide a verse from the Holy Quran, he would have hid Surah Abasa. He would have hidden Surah Abasa, which is you know very ridiculous. Now what's our critique of this? First of all the chain of transmission, when we look at these hadiths, the Senate, the chain, those people who narrated this is highly problematic. Why? Because these hadiths are general, generally narrated by or attributed to Aisha, Ibn Abbas or Anas Ibn Malik. What do you notice about these three when the Prophet was in Mecca? Do you notice anything? Exactly, they were either little kids or they were not born. Aisha was a young girl at the time, she must, it's not possible for her to have witnessed this when she was like two, three years old, how old was she? Ibn Abbas was not even born, he was not even born when this incident happened. Anas was not even in, Medi in, in, in Mecca, he was in Medina, he was born in Medina, later when the Prophet came to Medina, then he was young and he joined the religion of Islam. So we don't have an eyewitness account, neither Aisha or Anas or Ibn Abbas witnessed this. 
So who's the one who witnessed this event that the Prophet was sitting and he frowned and he turned his face and then God revealed this? Who are they narrating this from? What's their source? See, Aisha doesn't say the Prophet told me, she just narrates the incident. Anas doesn't say the Prophet later told me this is what happened or another companion told me, they just narrate this and they were not eyewitness, uh, you know, uh, what, those who witnessed, they were not eyewitness reports. That's a fundamental problem in the chain. As for those other hadiths that are attributed to the tabi'een, to the second generation of Muslims who came after the Prophet and never met the Prophet, same idea here, who did they narrate this from? Because we do have hadiths that attribute this incident to some second generation Muslims who came after the Prophet. Well, what was their source? They could not have been witnesses, so who is their source? So it's a broken chain. Therefore, we don't have a solid chain to begin with. That in itself raises a lot of questions about these uh, claims. That's number one. Number two, it seems if you read Surah Abasa, it seems from the tone of the verses that this was a habit of this man that he would be with the rich people and if a poor person would come, he'd get agitated, he would feel uncomfortable, he would frown and turn his face. If you look at the tone of the verses, it's not like, uh, you know, the sporadic event, no. It seems that this was a habit and this is not compatible with the manners of the Prophet No historical account, you know, narrates that the Prophet was like that. In fact, he had a lot of concern for the poor. Number three, when we look at the biography of the Prophet, we see the Prophet would not frown in the face of his own enemies. In his, in his own enemies' faces he would not frown. He's going to frown in a poor blind guy in his face. That's impossible. This is not compatible with the akhlaq of the Prophet. Number four, this contradicts the descriptions of the Prophet in the Quran. For example, one verse states, that a messenger has come from uh, amongst you. He is so concerned about you. He is so compassionate with you. I ask you this question. If a blind man comes from your followers and you turn your face on your frown, is this compassion? Is this showing concern for your people? He was the most kind and compassionate with the believers, with his own followers. So how is this possible? Another verse, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ Allah describes the Prophet of having utmost high character. Is this compatible with the character of the Prophet? Impossible. Number five, we actually have a verse in the Qur'an that tells us some Muslims told the Prophet, they told him, look, you sit a lot with poor people. We'll be honest with you, rich people don't like that. If you are interested in rich people joining you, you should kick those poor people out. Because when a rich guy comes and he sees there are some poor people around you, they're not interested. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse condemning what those Muslims said and He says to the Prophet, no, don't listen to them, don't you know, ask any poor person to leave your gathering. But then the Prophet did that. How is that possible? Allah is condemning those who made the suggestion. And then the Prophet, he does that, 
He violates the Holy Quran. What kind of a prophet is that? When he's preaching something, he's violating himself. He's preaching a book that says, don't kick out any poor person from your gatherings, but then he did it. How is that possible? What kind of a prophet is that? Yes. This incident of... No, 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 the verse that you just mentioned about... Um, no, 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 not Khulqul Azim, where the Muslims are rebuked. And Allah said, don't listen to them about not sitting with the poor. This, according to historians, this might be before that verse. Before Abasa wa Tawalla, yes. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, before Abasa wa Tawalla, is commanding the Prophet not to keep away any poor people from your gathering, then a while after he does it, that's impossible. He would not violate that. So yes, this came before it. Number six, when you continue the surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, you know, Abasa wa Tawalla, first of all, Allah doesn't say who. He turned his face, he frowned. Then God is saying to that person who frowned, وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ لَعَلَّهُ يَزَّكَّ Right? And then in another verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states وَمَا عَلَيْكَ أَلَّا يَزَّكَّ That rich person whom you were so concerned about, well it's none of your business whether he's guided or not. Let me ask this question, what's the business of prophets to do what? Guide people. How can God tell a prophet don't guide them? Because the word tazkiyah means to purify people and to guide them. In fact, in Surah Al-Jum'ah, in the second verse, what do we recite? هُوَ الَّذِي بَعَثَ فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ He's the one who sent them a messenger from amongst themselves to do what? يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ Number one, what does a prophet do? To recite the verses of God. Number two, وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ Purify and guide them. The Qur'an is very cl clear that one of the responsibilities of the Prophet is to guide and purify people. But Abbas says, it's none of your business to purify and guide people. That's a contradiction. What's going on here? I thought Prophets are supposed to guide and purify people. But Abbas is addressing that person who frowned. Allah is telling him, it's none of your business. وَمَا عَلَيْكَ أَلَّا it's not your business whether he is guided or not, whether he's purified or not. Well, that's the biggest business of prophets, to guide people and to purify them, to try with them. So obviously that's not a command to the prophet. We know God is not speaking to his messenger because Allah tells us that his messenger is supposed to do tazakki of people. But then here Allah says, It's not your business to do tazakkiyah. So who's that person? According to our hadiths from Al-Imam al-Sadiq he says this verse was revealed about a man from Bani Umayyah. A man from Bani Umayyah, he was desperate for those rich elites to become Muslim. So when this blind man came, he frowned and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these verses to rebuke him. To rebuke that person from Bani Umayyah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not mentioning who he is, right? So Allah is not saying it's the Prophet or someone else, 
The Imam says Allah is talking about that person. Now who is that person? There are a number of, of theories, right? The Imam doesn't mention exactly who he is, probably for taqiyya purposes, but according to clues that we have from historical accounts, it probably was Uthman because he's from the Bani Umayyah and there are indications that he's the one who did that. Now what you find very strange over here, which is just mind-boggling, if you ever have a discussion with our brothers from other schools of thought, the minute you say it's Uthman, they get defensive and they get agitated and angry and they start attacking us. But it's okay if it's the Prophet, SubhanAllah. The Prophet who's the greatest messenger of God. They accept for him what they don't accept for their caliphs. That's tragic. That's very tragic. How do you accept it for the Prophet? Why do you get defensive? If it's bad for the Prophet, if it's bad for Uthman, it's worse for the Prophet. Why do you get defensive? If it's a good thing, then why do you get defensive? So you know this is a good thing, the Prophet. It could apply to the Prophet, it could apply to Uthman. In fact, in fact, let me ask you this. If there is something in the Qur'an, regardless of what it is, if there is something in the Qur'an that applies to your Prophet and someone tries to apply it to you, would you be happy or sad? I would fly in these seven heavens. If there's something in the Qur'an about the Prophet, I don't care what it is. I don't care if that's the greatest creation of God and something is applicable to him and then you come and say, you know what, this is applicable to me or my father or my leader. I would be happy. I would fly. I would tell you, look, I don't care what the tafsir is. If it's applicable to the Prophet and it's applicable to me, I'm very happy. But you see that when you say it's Uthman, they get defensive. Why? Which reveals that in their hearts they know this is bad. This is an attack on whoever this person is and it's an attack on the Prophet and they accept it for the Prophet. And that's tragic. So we in the school of Ahlul Bayt, we believe this is not about the Prophet it's another person from Bani Umayyah, whoever it is, God knows. It's someone from Bani Umayyah who did this and Allah is rebuking him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is rebuking him in Surah Abasa. Yes, in between the verses Allah does speak to the Prophet. You know, he does address the Prophet, uh, but he's talking about another person. And by the way, if Allah wanted to make it clear that this is the Prophet, why would God say he frowned and make it ambiguous like that? He would have just said, you've proud. Because God touched the Prophet in the Quran. Abasta wa tawallayt, he would have told him. Why abasa wa tawalla? And then God switches to the second person. Because God starts with the third person, he frowned. Then God talks in the second person to the Prophet. Well, why do you do that? If it was the Prophet, keep it all in the second person and just talk to him. Which tells you that the subject is changed. When you're talking in the third person, you know, if you're talking to someone, you said, he is the one who committed the crime. And then you talk, oh, and this and that. Well, obviously you're talking about two subjects now. Because if I'm talking to you, I should keep it in the same person, right? Second person. So in any case, in the school of Ahlul Bayt, we completely reject that this was revealed about the Prophet. The Prophet is higher than doing something like that. And 
it's unfortunate that many, many have attacked the Prophet They don't accept this for their caliphs, but they accept it for the Prophet Just like we saw with the satanic verses. When it comes to their leaders, no, Satan falls on his head if he sees them, but he will insert words into the Prophet's mouth. Let's appreciate the Ahlul Bayt for protecting our faith and preserving the image of the Holy Prophet Yes. Once Father, this reminded me of, um, I was in school one time and I had some, uh, some Sunni sisters that were with me and she was telling the story about Prophet Muhammad and the, he was the one that was Abbasan. And I had never heard that before and I, just listening to that the first time I was like, yeah, What was your initial reaction? I never, like it goes against logic. I don't know how they all believe it. It's very unfortunate, subhanAllah. I don't know how anyone can believe it. Can believe this about his own leader. Yes. What's sad is that in English uh, translations of the Quran, in parentheses they put the Prophet. The Prophet, yes. Even though the Quran doesn't mention the pronoun like who it is, right? But they do mention, because they believe it's the Prophet. Now you'll find them coming up with justifications. Well, you know the Prophet is human, he made a mistake, and we're supposed to learn, right? Learn from our mistakes. So the Prophet learned from his mistake after God notified him and rebuked him and that's good because that also shows us that if we make mistakes we can learn. See they'll twist it around like that. But in the end it's illogical, it's incompatible with the Quran, it's incompatible with the attitude and behavior of the Prophet